Hey guys, we're doing something a little bit different. This is my final message in our series about misconceptions about heaven and hell. And I just realized this was such a heady and complicated subject. It was going to take so long. Uh, there was just no way I could condense it down to a few pop culture references in a 20-minute message on a Sunday. And uh, so I decided to do something different. This is going to be a lecture format. This is going to be less fun and less funny but our subject matter is less fun and funny. And I wanted to at least talk about this and address it. If you're interested in hell and the lake of fire, hopefully this helps you. Um, if not, you don't have to watch it because we're just releasing it online. So let's jump in, here we go. On July 8th, 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached one of the most famous sermons in American history. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Here's a quick excerpt. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. The sermon, which was preached to his congregation and then later to a larger crowd, um, is credited with helping start the first great awakening in North America, and especially in, the Amer in America. And uh, as a result, thousands of people converted to Christianity. Um, an unintended side effect, though, of this sermon was it has informed for generations the American imagination about what God is like and what hell is for. Pastors still use hell as a blunt theological instrument to scare people into converting to Christianity, just like Jonathan Edwards did in 1741. And as soon as I say the word hell, images appear in your mind. Maybe a shiver runs down your spine. You think about fire and death. And um, this is going to be a longer format explanation because this subject brings to mind so many different emotions and so many different things that we have heard and learned, so many contradictory things. I, I just think it's going to take more time to unravel. So if you're sticking with me, I hope that you find it helpful by the end. Um, often the context of the words that we translate hell in the New Testament, some scholars who don't like the idea of hell can do some theological gymnastics to avoid the unpleasant realities of the idea. But there's five verses in the book of Revelation, really four verses and five references in the book of Revelation that mention the lake of fire. And these passages are graphic and they're intense and they don't really leave you any wiggle room to get out of. Um, there was a famous book produced uh, maybe 10, 15 years ago now um, in Christian circles that uh, unraveled every reference to hell in the New Testament except the Lake of Fire references. They just completely ignored those because they're really hard to kind of get around because they're so graphic and intense and don't leave us any escape. Um, if we're going to take this book called the Bible seriously, I think we have to take these verses about the Lake of Fire seriously. It's unavoidable. We have to deal with them at some point. But before I get into the history of hell and the philosophy of hell and what Christians throughout the ages have thought about these four passages, I want to pause and apologize to you. Uh, many of you watching this have probably sat in churches at some point or had someone try to coerce you to sign something or say something or do something under the threat 
of Hellfire. I know one friend who's an atheist now, and he just went somewhere to play basketball. At, uh, he didn't realize it was a church thing. Before he knew it, all these adults were surrounding him, yelling in his face and telling him he was going to burn forever in a place called hell. He literally said or prayed or did whatever just to get out of that uncomfortable situation. Here he was, a 15-year-old kid, uh, in a situation that just made him super uncomfortable, didn't know what he was saying, didn't care, just wanted to get out of there. Someone at some point has probably verbally manipulated you or made you uncomfortable with the threat of hellfire. Some of you have probably rejected Jesus as a result of this behavior, or maybe you've left the church as a result of this behavior. And so I just want to apologize on behalf of Jesus. This isn't how he operated, and this isn't how his apostles operated. I'm sorry for how fellow mortals have wielded hell like an eternal weapon against you. If you look at the way that the apostles preached, every sermon we have recorded in the New Testament, they never threaten people with hell. They tell them to repent, but it's never under the threat of hell. If you look at what Jesus said, he talked more about how costly it was to follow him, not how costly it would be if they didn't. So this is an approach that Jesus used. This isn't an approach that his followers used. And I just want to apologize to you. Um, some of you who have stayed in the church have probably been manipulated into giving money because of hell or getting involved in activities because of hell. And I'm sorry this idea has been used to coerce you to do things that honestly the preaching of the good news of Jesus should inspire you to, not the threat of hell. Hell is a powerful motivator, but it's just not what Jesus and his apostles used to motivate people. I don't think that's the way he wanted us to motivate people. So with that out of the way, let's talk about what we imagine when we imagine hell. What comes into your mind when you hear the word hell? Our cultural imagination of hell comes from Plato and Dante's Inferno and ultimately in time, Milton's Paradise Lost. Along the, all these ideas together have been solidified into our Western cultural imagination of a place called hell. I don't think this can be overstated enough. Our idea of hell has been formed and reformed by art and philosophy, not theology. In the words of historian Aaron Patillo Lunt, American Christian interpretations of the Bible are significantly shaped by the media that they consume. In other words, our theology is shaped by the left-behind books we read and the cable news shows we watch, not by the Bible. We don't use the Bible as a lens to understand the world. Instead, we use art and media as a lens to understand the Bible. And this happens so often, and it's so natural that oftentimes we don't even understand or even think about it happening. The journey to unweave what the scripture says and what we assume it says as we read it because of all these outward influences through which we're looking at the Bible with, that's going to be a long, slow road. I think I'll spend the rest of my life trying to unweave what the scripture actually says versus what I've been learned to read into the text because of my cultural imagination. Recently, I was watching a debate between a Christian thinker and a divinity professor at Princeton, and the professor made a stunning accusation against the Christian speaker and Christians in general. He said, you're not Christians, you're neo-Platonists, um, calling yourselves Christians. I was stunned a little bit when he said this, and the more I thought about it, I realized that he had just summed up what more and more reading had been confirm confirming for me. 
the average American Christian, what they believe today, would make them a welcome party at a meeting of Plato's followers in the first century, but would have made them an uncomfortable extra at a meeting of Jesus's followers in the first century. To understand why our thinking in the church has been so shaped by Plato, we need to talk about two ancient historical influences on the church, Gnosticism and Augustine. First, let's talk about the heresy of Gnosticism. Gnosticism arose roughly 200 years after Jesus in the scattered Christian churches around the world. Gnosticism said salvation was about having a personal intellectual experience with the divine. Bodies were bad. Spirits were good. Your mind was good. It's part of your spirit. Bodies are bad. We would leave our bad physical body behind and our good soul would be released to be with a distant, otherworldly God. Although this thinking was condemned and expunged from the church in the early 300s, elements continued to be woven into the Christian story. Even though officially Gnosticism was denied and said, we're not Gnostic. No, that's not us. There were elements that remained into the church and began getting wove into the Christian story. People stopped seeing Jesus as a savior for the world and more as a personal savior. Salvation stopped being about becoming a disciple and more about intellectually agreeing with and experiencing the truth of who Jesus was. Since bodies were bad, resurrection, life on this planet was downplayed in favor of life out there in some other dimension, either in heaven or hell. Then along came Augustine, Bishop of Hippo. And it's impossible to fully grasp how profoundly Western Christian thinking has been influenced by Augustine. He is widely viewed as the most important early church father. Consider what famed historian Dermon McCullough said of him. Augustine's impact on Western Christian thought can hardly be overstated. Only his beloved example, Paul of Tarsus, has been more influential. And Westerners have generally seen Paul through Augustine's eyes instead of seeing Augustine through Paul's eyes. Did you catch that? Western Christians, that's us, we read the New Testament through the lens of Augustine. We've been told to read the Bible the way that Augustine read it. That's how influential he is on how we think about the Bible, how we think about heaven and hell. Augustine was proudly a student of Plato. He talks about that in his writings. And Plato's metaphysics and epistemology shaped his understanding of God. Now, I have no problem with gaining spiritual insights from secular sources. There's many, many times I think that's useful and practical. I think all truth is God's truth. But in the case of Plato, his ideas of hell have influenced how Augustine read the Bible and how Augustine read the Bible has influenced every single person in the West, how we read the Bible. Plato saw the soul as separate from the body, a novel idea at the time, but one we take for granted now. Consider the Pixar movie Soul as a modern example of how thoroughly platonic thinking has influenced us in the West. This ancient, the ancient uh, Jewish authors, if you look at um, in the Old Testament and then the early followers of Jesus were all Jewish, they defined soul very differently. Soul was a whole person, their entire being, their body, their mind, their emotions, and their will. That whole thing was your soul, your whole being. The biblical writers saw body and spirit as infinitely connected. To live without your body was a half state. And this is why the bodily resurrection of humans was so important in the Old and New Testament. 
Plato imagined souls as separate things, like you were a soul, you had a body. And we see numerous early church writers referencing Plato's definition of soul when they talk about the afterlife. So they were essentially using Plato's way of thinking about the soul in order to understand scripture in the early church. And since then, our thinking in the West, um, sorry, let me back up for a second. So not only did the early church do this, but this began to influence even our thinking today. Augustine took this even a step further. He imagined that there was a heaven and a hell based on Plato's work with these ideas. And Augustine used biblical language to back up Plato's arguments. So theology and philosophy became strange bedfellows. And since then, our thinking in the West has been so ensnared with this entanglement that we don't even realize how far we've gone down the rabbit's hole. We seamlessly use philosophical definitions to redefine what the original authors of scripture meant, and we don't even realize we're doing it. It's just natural. We're just swimming in this uh, this this um, cultural imagination, and we don't even realize that when we read a word, the the original authors were talking about something different. So let's talk about philosophy for a moment before we get into what the Bible says about the lake of fire. Does God have a philosophical right to judge evil? If he is who he says he is and created everyone, doesn't he both have the right and responsibility to judge evil? I think the answer is clearly yes. The ancient world longed for God to bring justice, to finally topple the powerful and oppressive, to make things right. And yet, as modern Westerners, we struggle with the idea that God would torture forever people who ravaged his world for only 60, 70, or maybe at most 80, 90 years. Shouldn't the punishment fit the crime? How does torture forever by an all-powerful sadistic jigsaw fit the image of God revealed in Jesus? Jesus claimed to be the clearest picture of God, the lens, if you were, if you were, um, through which we would view all of God's actions, past and future. Now we have to be careful here because what I hear sometimes is people say something um, like this: "I could never believe in a God who would torture people who rejected Him forever." That's silly. It's like saying I can't believe in cancer because it's too terrible to be true. Your unbelief doesn't make it untrue. So just because you don't believe something or it seems too outlandish or crazy doesn't mean it isn't necessarily true. Read about black holes. Everything I read, I'm like, these don't make sense. These can't be true. And yet they are. What we're really saying, though, when we say that is I could never believe in a God who did blank. If God is like that, even if he is real, I don't want to have any part of him. This whole discussion of hell is really this. It all comes down to this. Is God good? If he, it, it, it isn't really about whether or not he's real or not. That's not really the key question. The question is, if God is real and hell is real, how can God be good? And I think that's a good question to ask. And apparently, I think that's the question the biblical authors want us to ask and want us to wrestle with. It's literally in the first story of the Bible. In the first story of the Bible, it essentially asks this question, can God be good if he doesn't let me eat this good fruit? And it's repeated in every story of the Bible over and over again. Is God good? Can God be trusted? That's the question that every human being has to answer. And the invitation of the Bible is come and see. Taste and experience and find out. If God is good, I can trust he will do what is right in the life to come. So before we even get to the text, 
here's how I rectify philosophically the goodness of God and the evil of hell. The whole world just waded through a pandemic. We, with this COVID mess and everybody was shut up into their homes and had to wear masks and we're just now starting to come out of it. Infected people had to quarantine in order to stop the spread of the disease. They were dangerous. What was in them was hurting them and it could spread to others and hurt other people too. Maybe even hurt other people even more than it was hurting them. This is very similar to the biblical idea of sin. Sin is the self-destructive things we say and do and think. Things that hurt us and hurt others and hurt the world we live in. Jesus went to extreme lengths to deal with our sin, but it is elective surgery. God seems painfully protective of human free will, the ability to choose well and the ability to choose poorly. I believe that love demands free will. It demands a choice. You can't be forced to love. You have to have an opportunity to hate to really have an opportunity to love. In the kingdom that is coming, there will be no sickness or death or evil or despair. Jesus will rule and reign as king on earth. Only citizens who have had their sin purged can live in that kingdom without damaging it or hurting others in it. If you refuse the elective surgery to have your sin taken care of, you have to be quarantined for your own good and the good of the entire universe. Hell is simply the word we use for a cosmic quarantine for evil. We want all the evil out of the world, like all of us. Like you read the news and you're like poverty and racism and sickness and disease and war. I want it gone. There's not a day that goes by that I don't want all this crap, all this filth, all this garbage out of the world. The problem is that evil out there is also in here in me. C.S. Lewis said, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. As absurd as it might sound to you and me, some people would rather hold their head high in hell rather than bow their head to King Jesus. Jesus respects people way too much to force something on them that they do not want. God doesn't force anyone to love him. There's always an option to love and serve yourself. But I think that's always going to be a shallow and sickly half-life that won't satisfy the deepest longings we have as humans. So before we look at the passages that mention the lake of fire, let's just look at how the image of fire is used throughout the Bible. Despite what you might think, the Bible primarily uses fire as a positive image with a few key exceptions. In total, there are 364 total references to fire in the English Old and New Testaments. Here's some negative examples of fire. Sodom and Gomorrah burned with fire. They call it strange fire when they offered sacrifices to idols. Um, fire from God came down and burned up 250 people who were complaining. In 2 Kings 1, Elijah calls down fire and consumes 50 men. Cities, when they were conquered, they were said to be burned with fire. In 2 Kings 17, it talks about how some people were worshiping false gods and sacrificing their children to the fire. In Job 1, it talks about how fire came down and destroyed the sheep and the servants. That's some of the negative examples. Here's some of the positives, but we could go on and on. 
in Genesis 15, a fire passed between a fire pot passed between the animal sacrifice to make a covenant with Abraham. It was this picture of God's presence. In Exodus 3, God speaks out of a burning bush. In Exodus 13, a pillar of fire guides the Israelites in the desert. In Exodus 24, God's presence on the mountain looked like a consuming fire. In Leviticus 1, they're called to offer sacrifice with fire. In Leviticus 16, they're called to burn incense with fire. In Deuteronomy 4, they call God a consuming fire. In Judges 6, the angel of the Lord shoots fire from a staff and burns up this meat and bread offering. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah calls down fire on a altar to prove that Yahweh is the one true God. In 1 Kings 19, um, Elijah once again has this, sees this great fire, and then after that comes a gentle whisper, and it's God speaking to him. In 2 Kings 2, a chariot of fire takes Elijah up. In 2 Chronicles 7, fire fell and consumed the offering um, when Solomon builds the temple. So we could go on and on with all these examples of positive images of fire. But let's turn our focus now to the references of fire in this final book of the Bible, Revelation. There are five references to the lake of fire found in four different passages, and I'm just going to read them for you. In Revelation 19.20, it says, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. In Revelation 20.10, it says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. In Revelation 20.14-15, it says, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. In Revelation 21.8, it says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Wow. These are some of the most graphic images of hell that our Western imaginations have latched onto. Um, even though these are some of the most graphic images of hell that we think of, and when you read those, you're immediately like, there it is. That's hell. That's that's what it's like. The Christian church hasn't always been sure about how to interpret these four passages. See, throughout church history, there's always been some debate about how to interpret Revelation as a book. Is this a completely symbolic book? Like, everyone agrees that the book is filled with symbolism, but some see the entire story as a symbolic representation of the cosmic battle between good and evil. Like, this book is retelling the whole story of the Bible in a condensed book. This argument would draw attention to, uh, this argument would draw attention to death and the grave being tossed into the lake of fire in Revelation 2014. If the lake of fire is a place of eternal punishment, how do you punish things like death and the grave? Like, oh man, we're really going to make the grave pay for, you know, accepting all those dead. You know, that doesn't make sense. Clearly that's metaphoric or symbolic language. And so then they would say, well, if that's metaphoric or symbolic, maybe it all is. Um, some would argue that the lake of fire is symbolic of these things coming to an end, that the grave and death are coming to an end. And so they would argue that the lake of fire is also saying cowards and liars and murderers are also coming to an end. These are categories 
that are being destroyed under the reign of Jesus. Still others have seen Revelation as completely literal. Uh, it's very popular in Western Christianity, often inspiring movies and books and traveling speakers to prevent, present theories on how the world will end according to the Bible. This has led to Christians looking for antichrists under every rock and under every political flag and trying to pigeonhole current events into the murky passages of Revelation. This theory is similar but distinct from a historical theory, which holds that Everything in Revelation uh, was literal, but it was actually historical. So it's things that happened in the past, not things that will yet happen in the future for us. So uh, how do we take Revelation? Uh, all scholars would agree with this. The point that John is trying to make, the author of Revelation, is be obedient in the present because you can have hope about the future. So how do we then try to figure out what do we make of these lake of fire images if we have debates about whether it's literal or historical or symbolic? Um, some have argued that the picture of the lake of fire is actually a picture of a refiner's fire. The word translated lake is the Greek word for pool or pond of fire. Proponents of this theory would note how the pool of fire has sulfur in it. If you notice the verses mention that in the first century, um, in metallurgy, when you were purifying metals, you would put sulfur in and it would draw the impurities out of your silver or your gold to the surface so that you could scoop it off and have a pure metal. And so some early church leaders a few hundred years after Jesus proposed that hell was a real place, but it was a refining fire and eventually everyone would make it to the world beyond. Some scholars instead suggest that the lake of fire is actually total annihilation. Um, they draw attention to the fact that it's called the second death. Like this is the final death. You're either resurrected to eternal life or you're just cease to exist. Um, they would also draw, they would also draw attention to Jesus's language of Gehenna being a place where your body and your soul would be destroyed. Proponents of this theory suggest that our, our idea that all souls are eternal Come from comes from Plato, not scripture. He talked about everyone has an eternal soul, bodies pass away, but your soul lasts forever. And they would suggest that those that choose to reject a world ruled by Jesus can instead choose to cease to exist. They can either live in Jesus's kingdom or choose not to exist at all. Um, this view would present God, instead of cackling as he tortures people, would instead suggest that God allows people to choose not to be with him instead of forcing them to wi live with him or be tortured. If you're wrestling at this point with what to make about hell or just the whole concept of hell, just know this, you're in good company. Lots of thinkers and believers throughout church history have wrestled with it too. It's complicated because the book of Revelation is complicated to interpret. It's complicated because we have been influenced by Plato and Dante and Milton. It's complicated because the church has used hell as a club to coerce people into belief or service. And so we have all this baggage when we say the word hell. And so here's where I go back to. You're like, Alex, what do you think? Where, where do you land in all this? This is what I go back to. Peter, Jesus's right-hand man, said this: these words I'm about to read about 50 years after Jesus rose and ascended. After having a lifetime to reflect on what Jesus said and what he did, this is what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but he's patient with you, 
not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. People were asking Peter, like, why doesn't Jesus come back and fix all this brokenness in the world? And Peter says, because he's patient and he doesn't want anyone to perish. What do I think about hell? I think that God doesn't want anyone to perish and he wants everyone to come to repentance. And I think this verse, though, also implies that not everyone will. If everyone will eventually come to repent, why wait? Like, why is he being patient? Peter seems to be implying he's being patient because some people won't. But if they had a little bit more time, they would. Ultimately, I think it comes down to this. I believe the world would be a better place if everyone lived and loved like Jesus. I'm an apprentice of Jesus's way of life and training myself to treat others like he did and make others feel like he did. And I want to introduce as many people as possible to the ways of Jesus because I think his way of life is an abundant life. I don't think that we're sinners in the hands of an angry God. I think we're sinners in the hands of a loving God. We have a God who does not hold us over the fire, cackling that he gets to throw us in. We have a God who loves the world so much that he sent his only son into the world to die into our in our place at great personal cost to himself to rescue us from sin and death and the grave. And so... With all the unknowns, with the messy ambiguity, I trust Jesus to do what is right because I have tasted and I have seen and I am confident that he is a good God and that he can be trusted. Do I have all the answers? No. Is this whole concept of hell much more messy than we'd like it to be? Yes. But I know this. I've become assured of this. I'm confident of this. I think Jesus is good and he will do what is right.